All right, so now we can turn to Genesis chapter 43 as we are reminded of the work of the Spirit in our salvation. We will begin reading in Genesis chapter 43, verse 1, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with us. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us, do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare a dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now, the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver we put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's stewards and steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. Please, sir, they said, we we came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our sacks. It is all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took them in into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that they were to eat there. 
When Joseph came home, they presented him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and then he said, How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. They bowed low to pay him honor. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your younger brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other with astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask today that you speak to us in your word. Speak to us in a way that changes us. Speak to us in a way that draws us closer to you. Speak to us in a way that our eyes are open to see your glory and our ears are open to hear your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, two gentlemen by the name of Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley wrote a book called Conscience. In the book, they seek to define what conscience is. They seek to tell us what conscience does and they seek to tell us how we can calibrate that conscience to be more in line with God's Word. After looking at 30 occurrences of the word conscience in the New Testament, they come to the conclusion that our conscience is a gift from God. And it is our consciousness, our capacity to determine right and wrong. They argue that every human being has a capacity to determine what is right and wrong according to God. Romans 2 talks about this when Paul speaks of Gentiles doing the will of God when they, when they do the law of God and doing what it requires even when they do not have the law written for them. They also speak of the fact that our conscience convicts us and can convict us in two very uncomfortable ways. The first way that our conscience convicts us uncomfortably is when, you know, we don't know God. When we are at enmity, when we are at war with God, and the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts to show us the depth of our sinfulness. And He does that by convicting us through our conscience. But the other way that our conscience can convict us uncomfortably is for the child of God, who has embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior and who is growing in knowledge of how God wants us to live faster than we are able to put that knowledge into action and to be obedient. In either scenario, in either case, where do we go? Where do we find peace in our conscience? Well, the answer is same for both scenarios, and we will work our way to the answer as we consider today's passage as we look at how God shows Jacob that God can be trusted with his idols, and also how God declares peace to the brothers. 
First, God can be trusted with your idols. The first 14 verses of today's passage deal with the immediate survival of Jacob and his family. In the last chapter, the ten of the brothers had gone to Egypt. They had bought grain that would help sustain them through the famine. But the famine is still severe and that food is running out. Jacob realizes that their family is in trouble and he comes to the brothers and he says, go back and buy more grain. Well, Judah has become the spokesperson for the brothers, apparently, over the the 20 years that um, has has happened between uh, chapter 38, when he left the family and now he's back with the family and he has become the spokesperson. Remember, the oldest Reuben disqualified himself as spokesperson for the brothers when he uh, tried to steal that place of prominence by sleeping with Jacob's concubine. Simeon and Levi, the next two brothers who would be in line, disqualified themselves from leadership of the family when they very violently exacted revenge upon the men of Shechem after the rape of their of their sister Dinah. So Judah stands up, he speaks for the brothers, and he says, Dad, that's great. We'll be more than happy to go and buy grain. As long as Benjamin can go with us, because remember, the man told us He's not going to sell us anymore unless your youngest son goes with us. Think back over the life of Jacob. Who was his favorite wife? It was Rachel. Who was his favorite son? It was Joseph, the oldest son of Rachel, who was taken from him. And and, and Jacob has transferred that favoritism to Benjamin. And what do we do When God, through the Spirit or through other people, begin to attack something that we idolatrously hold dear, we attack back, do we not? And so that's exactly what Jacob does. He says, it's your fault that that Benjamin has to go back. Why didn't you all just keep your mouth shut when you were in Egypt? And, And the brothers, and you've got to love this. These brothers have been at each other's throats. And here they begin to work together to defend themselves. They stand up together and they say, look, Dad, he asked us questions. He said, do you have a father? Is your father still living? Do you have another brother? Where is he? What could we do but answer his questions? And then Judah steps up again and he says, Dad, look. He said, number one, let me take responsibility for Benjamin. In the last chapter, Reuben said, you know what? If if anything happens to Benjamin, I'll give you my children. Judah says, no, I I will personally take responsibility for Benjamin. Think about Judah for just a minute. In chapter 38, Judah abandoned the family. In chapter 37, Judah came up with the idea to sell his brother Joseph to slave traders. In chapter 38 as well, he You know what? He did not take good care of his family. He tried to deny Tamar her rightful inheritance. This is the same Judah that slept with Tamar thinking she was a prostitute. And yet here he is stepping up. What did Tamar tell him probably recently in the history? Or what did he say? Excuse me, probably recently at the end of that event with Tamar. He says she is righteous, not I. God is working in Judah and the brothers to grow them to a level of maturity. And Judah has grown in respect for his father. 
He confronts his father in a way that honors his father's wishes, but is also firm with him in pointing out to him where he is wrong. Judah basically says, okay, I will take responsibility for Benjamin. My life will be forfeit if anything happens to him. But if you really stand here and say, don't take Benjamin, we won't. Even though there's 10 of us and one old man and one 22-year-old boy, we could take him, we could tie him up and take him ourselves. We'll honor your wishes. But let me remind you of something. You're afraid of losing Benjamin. And I get that. But if we stay here, not only Benjamin, but all of us, your wife, and you yourself are going to die of starvation if you do not allow us to take Benjamin back to Egypt. One of the hardest things that we ever have to do sometimes is confront our parents with something. God has called me to do it in my past a long, long time ago to confront my dad with something in his life. It's the hardest thing, probably one of the hardest things I ever had to do. This was a godly man. And yet one area of his life, he needed some correction. And for some reason, God said, Ike, you're the one to approach your father. You had to do it with honor. You had to do it with respect, but you had to do it. And I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room that has had to do that in the past. Has had to confront somebody that you dearly love and dearly respect. Judah has grown to the point where he has dearly loves and dearly respects his father. And he gives us a good model of confronting that type of person with their sin. And Jacob relents. Jacob sees the wisdom of God's path. Jacob Jacob sees the fact that he is idolizing Benjamin to the point where he is putting himself and the rest of his family in danger, mortal danger. He gives his sons instructions. He says, gather up what little bit of gifts you can from uh, the land, pistachios and myrrh and honey. Honey would have been very valuable during this time. It was one of the only ways to sweeten your tea during the ancient Near East. And it would have been very uh, scarce during a famine. And so he says, take this sugar, take this honey to them. It'll be valuable to them and just show them the gifts of the land. This is a, these are gifts of humility. These are gifts going to this man saying, we are your servants. Not knowing who this man was, they went to him and said, we are your servants. And not only does he give gifts, he gives a prayer. In verse 14, he says, God Almighty, that's a name that first shows up for us in Genesis 17, where God comes to Abraham and talks about Abraham being a blessing to the nations. And he says, God Almighty will be the God who makes you a blessing to the nations. And Jacob says, God Almighty will grant mercy and success to you. And, and we have a tendency to read the end of verse 14 as kind of a, a case hurrah, hurrah, whatever will be, will be. But it is a word of trust. God Almighty will grant mercy and success. But if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Is very similar to the prayer that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Our Lord is able to save us from this fiery furnace. But if He does not, He will be glorified anyway. 
And so Jacob sends them on his way. Jacob learns that God can be trusted even with his idols. In 1998, Tom Brokaw wrote a book called The Greatest Generation. It's about the generation that grew up in the Depression and fought World War II, a generation that we are losing. Have you ever meet somebody from that generation? What do they do with stuff in their home? Little, I remember my grandparents, you know, no little margarine tub went unused. No little piece of tinfoil went unused until it was just falling apart and in tatters. And even then it might be balled up in a ball and saved for some other use. Why? That's how they grew up. That's how they lived. They got into that habit of holding on to stuff. And we do the same thing. It may not be margarine tubs. It may not be little ratty pieces of tinfoil. But don't we hold on to things that we think are blessing us? That, are think, that we think are bringing us joy and we're unwilling to let them go? Maybe a spouse. It may be a child. It may be money. It may be some prized possession you have. It, it may be your sense of independence in this world. But we cling to it, we hold on to it, and we are so unwilling to let it go and so combative when somebody comes to us and says, I think you're holding too tightly to that thing. God tells us that He is the one that blesses us. He is the one that brings us joy. And He can be trusted when we let that go and give it to Him. He can be trusted to fill us, to take care of us. And Jacob has finally come to the realization that God is the only thing that can bring him joy and blessing and that he must trust God with his idol, with Benjamin. So Jacob learns that he can trust God with his idols. He also learns, the brothers learn, that God declares peace be unto you. So the brothers get to Egypt and they approach the area where the grain is purchased. They're standing there in line and these Egyptian officials, probably guards, come and grab them apart and say, you need to come over here. If you're in line, if your conscience is already bothering you because remember last time they're saying we're suffering because of what we did to Joseph. Now they're thinking, okay, we've got double the money here because everybody thinks we're thieves. And then a guards and some officials come and pull you out of line. You'd be scared just like they were. They're sitting there talking to themselves. Oh man, we're in trouble. They think we're thieves. And so the first thing they do is they grab Jacob's or Joseph's steward, his household steward, and they say, look, here's the deal. The last time we were here, we paid gold. We paid silver, excuse me, for our, for the grain that we got. And when we got to our camping place the next night, we opened the sack of grain and, and there was our silver back. And then we got home and we opened the other sack of grain and there was a silver for that one. And then the next one, there was silver there. And then the next one, there was silver there. And and we don't want to look like thieves, so we've brought double. Here's the money that we owe you. And the steward says, it's all right. According to my ledger here, you've paid for everything. Maybe it was your God who put treasure back there. And notice that it's at this point that Simeon is brought back to them. And we're given the clue that the silver was a test, a test of their honesty, a test of their integrity. And when they pass the test, Simeon is restored to them and given back to them. So they they go into Joseph's presence. They found out that they're going to be served a meal in his presence. And 11 sons of Jacob 
bow down to one. Chapter 37, that first dream that Joseph had, his 11 brothers bowing down to him, making themselves his servant. And so he stands them up and he says, look, um, is this your brother? They say, yeah, this is our brother, Benjamin. Actually, he asked about the father first, about Jacob. Is your father well? Is he living a good life? And they say, yeah, everything's good. And, and he meets his little brother, who was probably close to two when, J- when Joseph left last time. And he sees this man who's probably 20, 22 now. The, the word boy in, in, in Hebrew can be uh, translated as anything from an infant to a person, a man who has been married. Somebody who has not yet been declared a man. He's a boy. Oh man, this 20 year reuniting with his little brother. It just overwhelms him. And he has to run off. He has to go find a place to weep in joy. So he comes back. He gets himself all set up and, and the meal is served. Joseph is off to one side because he's a very important person and very important per- people don't eat with other people. The, the Egyptians are off to another side because, you know, those people are detestable. We can't eat with them. We can't share a table with them. And we have to be careful that we don't fall into that same trap in our own world and in our own life, separating ourselves from other people just because of who they are. And then the brothers get to the table and they look at their name cards and they say, hey, wait a minute, we're in order. How did this happen? And then as they're being served, Simeon gets his part. Then, or excuse me, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, then Judah, then the other brothers, and they come to Benjamin, and Benjamin gets five plates of food where everybody gets one. How did the brothers react the last time a brother was treated as a favorite? The younger brother was treated as a favorite. They sold him into slavery. They threatened to kill him. But what happens here? They just go along with it and they enjoy the party. They eat till they were filled. God has worked in this family over the last 20 years to mature the brothers. And, and we, we miss that detail sometimes when we look at that. But that's not the important part of this passage. The important part of this passage is actually a statement that the steward makes that, that doesn't quite make it in translation. If we were to look at verse 23 in the English Standard Version, instead of where it says, it's all right, it actually says, peace be unto you which is what is in the original language, that idea of shalom. It's still a greeting in Israel today. It's kind of like aloha in Hawaii. If you go to Israel and you greet somebody, they'll say shalom. Instead of saying goodbye, you'll say shalom. And it's the word that we understand as peace, but peace is not merely the absence of violence or the absence of war. To quote the theological word book of the Old Testament, peace is the idea of completeness. Wholeness, harmony, fulfillment. And it's not just individual completeness, wholeness, harmony, or fulfillment. Wrapped up in the concept is the idea of unimpaired or restored relationships. Peace is the idea of reconciliation between warring parties. A completeness, a wholeness between people or groups of people who cannot get along. The brothers bring their gifts. They bring their money. They bring what they think is valuable to the steward. And they say, look, we look like sinners before you and we want to make it right. And he says, peace, reconciliation, restoration, 
Your record is clean. Your ledger is balanced. It's all right. When that conscience digs at us, whether it's our conscience that digs at us and convicts us because we don't know where to find forgiveness, or whether it's the conscience that digs at us because we have found forgiveness and we know what God expects, but no matter how hard we try, our actions cannot keep up with our knowledge. We look to the cross and God says, Peace be unto you. Your gifts are worthless. Your money is worthless. Your righteousness is worthless. Everything has been paid on the cross. Your balance is clean. Your ledger is clear. Peace be unto you. If you don't know that peace, talk to myself after the service. If you do know that peace and yet your conscience is weighing you down, look to the cross and know that your balance is paid. You are forgiven. You are righteous. Peace be unto you. To wrap up, the brothers stand before Joseph fearing for their life, for their safety. What does he do? He invites them to a meal. It's a shame I didn't schedule this better. It's a shame that we don't have bread and juice on the table here before me, before you. Because see, that's all we bring to God. We bring our sinfulness. We bring our failings. We bring our shortcomings and and sometimes we say, God, okay, look, I know I I messed up here, but remember this last time when I did really good? Can you take that instead? Or or, I I know I messed up here, but, you know, last two or three times I I didn't go to that that website. But can you remember those times instead of this? And and God says, you know, those those gifts that you're trying to bring to me are worthless. But let's sit down at the table anyway. Let's have a meal Let's feast together and you be filled. But not only do we remember at the meal what he did in the past, we remember that he still invites us to a meal. That meal that when he returns, he told his disciples, I will not eat this together again with you until you see me in my kingdom. And Genesis 19 has this beautiful picture taken from Isaiah where Jesus, when he returns, he brings with him a table a wedding feast. And all of God's people sit down with Jesus at that table and have a meal. And He gives us a blessing before the meal. Peace be unto you. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, what we bring to you is worthless. And yet you cry, peace be unto us. Or thank you for the work that has been done on our behalf. Thank you that the, the, the penalty was paid. The ledger was balanced. The record was wiped clean at the cross so that we might have peace with you. Jesus is our peace. He is the one that has broken down the wall of hostility between us and between you. Lord, when we are racked and wrecked by our conscience, Turn our eyes to the cross. Remind us that you proclaim peace over us through the work of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.